0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhuta sannamo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhuta sannamo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhuta sa bhutang tamang sankang namasavi So, this is a special day, the full moon of July, celebrated as As Asala Puja. And this is the opportunity to reflect on the first sermon of the Buddha after his enlightenment. celebrate this event as as we do in this tradition. Because this first sermon is very profound, very direct, and very practical. So even though it's from 2,564 years ago, it resonates in modern life here in the UK, or Thailand, or anywhere else. Because it's not about 2,564 years ago event, it's about the the reality of a, this human condition that is ever-present, whether it's in ancient times or today, the ones sitting here in this temple listening to this reflection. Because the noble truth of suffering is something that's universal. It's, it's something that, that everyone feels, no matter who they are rich or poor, whether they're king or peasant, beggar, male or female, black or white, whatever, the human condition, has this as a noble truth to reflect upon, because we all wonder why we suffer. And suffering is something that we don't want. We we, we're we looking for happiness, for stability, for security, safety, love, in conditioned phenomena. So when we do that, you know, the Buddha emphasized the nature of conditioned phenomena is that it changes. It's impermanent. Its very nature is impermanent. Therefore, when we b- ignorantly attach to the body, to our emotions, to our memories, our feelings, our sensory experiences, then we suffer, and we wonder why and who's to blame for it. You know, it's a, a blaming society. Modern society is is very much about blaming somebody for what's wrong, what's gone wrong, internally or externally, whether our suffering, our emotional problems, we can blame on early childhood experiences, and we can blame our suffering the present day with the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, or the political system that we're living under. Uh, We can blame the suffering on senior, junior, members of the Sangha, or the lay people, on the weather. So there's always looking for who's to blame for this noble truth. And so what is noble and true about suffering is that the noble part is about recognizing it, changing your attitude from blaming and trying to find happiness in the realm that can only change and be impermanent, unstable, uncertain. To recognize the true refuge is in awareness. So the first noble truth is to be understood. There's three aspects to each of the four noble truths. So there's 12 insights. The first insight is the, is the statement that from the scripture that we get from the suttas, there is suffering. It, the second insight is it should be understood. Now, how do you understand suffering? You can't understand it by blaming it on early childhood traumas or teachers or, or, husband wife children or the political system externally you know you can't understand the the suffering of the noble truth through blaming somebody else for it because even those who make a who we blame for our suffering and saying that they shouldn't treat me like this or they shouldn't have done this to me and so forth, then those people are also suffering from ignorance the same as we are. So this day offers this special reflection on the Four Noble Truths to to begin to see the opportunity we have with the Vasa, the Pansa. We enter the, the, the this annual... Retreat for three months tomorrow and uh, emphasis on this, this uh, Sala Puja reflection of, of the Aryas, of Aryan Four Noble Truths. So the nobility of it is that it's, it's a direction to realize non suffering, not through seeking some kind of external form of happiness, or just trying to be positive in your thinking abilities, just to try to convince yourself you're happy, but to understand it. To understand something, you have to investigate it, look at it, receive it. you can't understand suffering just by reading the definition of the word in a dictionary. And that's not noble, just reading about, you know, the definition of suffering in the Oxford Dictionary. What's noble is the fact that this noble truth leads you to non-suffering if you go in that direction. If you take the advice, look at the aspects of uh, the first three aspects of the First Noble Truth. There is suffering, should be understood. And the third insight is it has been understood. It means you have actually looked at dukkha, at suffering, at discontentment, unhappiness, wanting something you don't have, or not wanting things to be the way they are. Seeking sensual pleasures, trying to find happiness through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, through thinking. You know, because we can get temporary moments of happiness when we get what we want on a sunny day. You know, one feels happy. But that kind of happiness is dependent upon other conditions. You know, it's not a noble truth. It's not nibbana. It's not freedom from suffering. It's not non-suffering. It's momentary happiness that depends on conditions for that particular emotion to arise. So these three aspects, uh, t- take seriously, you know, t- to understand suffering, to stand under it, to receive it, accept it, investigate it, it's like this, feeling discontented, is like this, and you, you're taking this position of witnessing it, not trying to figure out who's to blame, or whether it's your fault, or the weather's fault, or God's fault. So then you have the insight. Insight is is, is a understanding, not an intellectual understanding, but an intuitive understanding. We call this intuitive awareness. It's not to define suffering with other words or definitions. Or to trace it back to the original creator of the world, but to see that the, each one of us, individual, separate beings in form, this sense of uncertainty. Why? Why are you? Why are you? Why do you come to monastery? What do you want? What do you hope to get? You know so because we suffer. So it's a noble truth, rather than a nasty fact of life. So it's not like depressing, or, or it's not a depressing philosophy, Buddhism. It's a direct pointing, taking something quite ordinary like our own discontentment unhappiness fear anxiety worry guilt remorse regret that we create in the present that's the suffering that we're witnessing and that witnessing position the intuitive awareness is that it doesn't suffer when we begin to trust it Suffering is impermanent. Sankara, as we say, or conditions or phenomena, created things with forms, with limitations, with boundaries, the separateness that we feel in life, the loneliness that we can feel in our lives Uh, because we're identified with such a limited form as a physical body. Now the second noble truth is the cause of suffering, so it's not the first noble truth gives you the, the direction to understand suffering, the cause of it, and then it helps you to, to investigate the desire, dana. And I found this very helpful in my life, in, in recognizing desire, because usually in the English language, desire is, is, uh, has a kind of pejorative connotation to it. You say somebody has a lot of desires, it means they, they want a lot of money, or power, sexual experiences, good food, all that kind of gamma dana, which is desire for sensory pleasures, or for, for being a person of importance. We desire to become famous, or important, or make our mark on the society, You know, so we, these desires can be rather noble, in fact, to save the world, to save the climate, the planet, from deterioration, to save the society from degeneration and corruption. These are very noble desires that we can be very attached to. And then Whipple would not now desire to get rid of all the evil forces, the pollution of the environment. Get rid of uh, everything that we don't like. Uh, get rid of evil, and 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 get rid of uh, corruption. Get rid of everything that shouldn't be. So these three kinds of desires, gamadhanha is the first one, the sensual desire, as you experience through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. touching. dana is through thinking, wanting to become something, wanting to become an Arahant, wanting to become Maitreya Buddha, or wanting to become uh, next life uh, as a Devada or a Brahma, Uh, or an angel or a superior form than just this mortal form that we identify with now. So bhavadana is, is a desire for becoming something. So notice that coming to a monastery, the desire to become enlightened is like this. It's not wrong. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have any desires, because desire is is a noble truth. We investigate it we're not trying to annihilate it. sensual desire, desire for becoming, getting something we don't have. desire for power, for position, for recognition, for appreciation, for happiness, is like this. So notice, in this simple statement, it's like this, is a way of investigating. It's not a kind of resignation, a negative resignation to the way it is as a, as a negative state of mind, but it's an embracing recognition at this moment, it can only be like this. The way you're feeling at this moment is this way. And uh, not defining it in any way. You don't have to kind of tell me exactly what you're feeling at this moment, please don't tell me, but just be the puto, the aware witness, that the mood. The mental state that each one of you, you individual seminars is experiencing is like this, and notice this is a an embracing observation. It's not a it's not a critical one. If your ne- if your mood is negative or confused or whatever you're witnessing at this time. You can only be the way it is, it, it is like this. And moods change, they're very changeable. We can be a very moody person. vipo now desire to get rid of the unwholesome elements Get rid of the disruptive elements in the monastery. Get rid of the COVID pandemic. Get rid of my anxiety and worry, my, my guilt, my remorse, my fear. My anger. I want to get rid of it. I don't like it. But so, not liking something, wanting to get rid of it, desire to annihilate is like this. So in this, in this statement, it's like this. Is a witnessing. Is the witness intuitive witnessing. It's like this. before you judge it, before you, you make judgments, value judgments about the way you're feeling in this moment. Because judgment, the thinking process, the critical habits that we have through thinking, they complicate everything. The thinking process complicates our life. When you think of yourself as a separate individual personality, then your life becomes increasingly more complicated, because each one of us, if we regard ourselves as as a unique, individual, complicated personality, whether we think we're we're enlightened or unenlightened, uh, neurotic, screwed up, mentally distressed, whatever we think... That's a value judgment. Thinking is about good, bad, right and wrong, heaven and hell. Intuitive awareness isn't judgmental. Bhutto is not a, a, a kind of Buddhist judge, a critic that, that condemns anything or, or tries to make you feel guilty. We do that with our own thoughts, the way we hold conditioned phenomena, the way we hold memories of the past. The future is, is the unknown. Tomorrow, we plan to enter the Vasa tomorrow, but that's imagined right now, isn't it? entering Vasa tomorrow, and Emerald said the time we meet at that time, that's imagination right now, you imagine it. So tomorrow is an imagination. And that's the way it is, intuitive witnessing, the way it is, because it can only be this way at this moment this present here-and-now reality that we're experiencing, the forms that we identify with are changing, so we can imagine them in the future, as being strong and healthy, enlightened, happy individuals, monks, nuns, living life in just serene bliss forever. We, that's imagination here and now. Or we can think we we're not getting anywhere in our practice. I can't meditate. That's imagination. So witnessing imagination is not is not trying to make a value judgment about it because. Intuitive awareness is not judgmental, it just notices the way it is. Fear of the future, dread about the future, confusion about what should I do with my life in the future, is imagination here and now, and it's like this. So these three categories of desire, gamadana sensual desire, Bhavadana, desire for becoming, Vipudana, desire to get rid of it, get rid of desire, get rid of whatever you don't like, is like this. So this puto, this witnessing, isn't personal. It's conscious, intuitive awareness. You don't create it, it's not an image, it's not doesn't have a shape or form. But it's here and now, because you know you're conscious. That's a fact that no one in this temple can deny. But then, the imagination after that is that I'm conscious, my body's conscious. My consciousness is like this. And so we start imagining ourselves as individuals separate from each other, different from each other. All the problems that come between male and female, between senior, junior, monks, nuns, right, left, communists, democrats, socialists. You know, there's endless judge, value judgments that go on politically, socially, racially. That we, we're just habituated to this this judging about who's right and who's wrong and what is better and what is worse. So that's what thinking does. It's, it's, it's a habit we develop at an early age. The critical mind is about forms, about qualities. Because qualities can be good, bad, right and wrong, beautiful, ugly, big or small. Forms are like that, they're changing. That's their nature, they arise and they cease, they begin and end. So you have insight, the second aspect, the statement of the Second Noble Truth. There is a cause of suffering, and the insight, when you investigate desire, is to let go of it. Letting go of desire, you have to know desire to be able to let go. You can't just suppress desire, that's not letting go of desire, that's another form of desire. Vipu trying to suppress your desires is another desire so you can't follow desire to get rid of desire but to use that which is non-desire which is awareness awareness doesn't have desires consciousness doesn't isn't about desire So then you have the insight through through practice of letting go. Which is what? How do you let go of desire? By suppressing it or just receiving it and letting it do its business of cessation? Because desires cease, they're impermanent, they're non-self. So other than (laughs) suppressing them, annihilating desire, you're you're understanding. it. It is a sankhar, it's a condition, it's a phenomenon that begins and ends, changes according to other conditions. It's like this, good desires, bad desires, arise and cease in the same way. And they all cease, you know, if you're patient, if you really trust in intuitive awareness. If you're patient, you know, when you're impatient, you want to get rid of desire, then that's impatience, lack of patience, to let something be what it is. But remember, your refuge is in Bhutto, or in Buddha, or awareness of desire. Not trying to conquer one desire with another desire doesn't work, doesn't really solve the problem. You can't understand anything that way through just trying to suppress or deny and try to create happiness as some some kind of personal endeavor. So, The the second aspect to the second noble truth is to let go. And the third is the insight. Letting go has happened, it's like this. You're just letting things be what they are and they run their course, desire whatever form it takes. It's condition, it's a sankhara, it arises, it abides, it sustains itself for a while and then ceases. But puto, awareness, the witnessing position, it's constant, you know, it's a, it's, it doesn't, you don't become mindful as a person. Mindfulness is your real nature, it's not personal. We make the conditions personal, the forms, that we identify, the bodies, the age, the gender. That way is very personal. But consciousness, awareness, is non-personal. So in this reference to Bhutto as a practice, it means intuitive awareness here and now is like this. It's kind of listening, opening, receptive, embracing, relaxed, rather than something just trying to create content, uh, control, get something you don't have, get rid of what you have, So Po Cha's definition of meditation is holiday of the heart. So the, it's, it's, a, it's a relaxed state of just being here and now. So I experience it like listening, I hear the silence, I notice the silence behind the sounds, behind the forms that arise and cease. Because silence is, is, the, is the substratum, it's the background to all the noise, confusion, sounds, good, bad, pleasant, unpleasant, things we think, feel, emotions that arise and cease, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. All those things are changing phenomena But awareness of phenomena is conscious, intuitive awareness here and now. And it's learning to trust this. So then the third aspect of the Second noble Truth is letting go as you accomplish it. You, you, you understand letting go. You're actually letting go which leads to the third noble truth the cessation of suffering so when i've said that intuitive conscious awareness isn't suffering suffering is is about the forms the conditions so that's cessation or Nirvana. The end of suffering is like this. And the inside is to be this, be this empty, intuitive, aware presence here and now. Whether you're sitting, standing, walking, lying down, working, meditating. Learning to recognize this, this peaceful state of silence that's always present. that is non-personal, it isn't about quality or conditions that depend on it. So when you have this insight into silence, the eternal silence, pure presence here and now, puto, aware, So this witnessing is, is again it's a witness, it's a it's not a judge. You're not witnessing to make value judgments about yourself or anything else, but it's like this. So it's a still silent peaceful blissful reality that we're that it's always with us, but we're not aware of it. Because when we're identified with phenomena, that's always changing. Even when we have peaceful moments with phenomena, you know, it, it changes. What we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, experience is always changing. So how can you find stability or happiness in something that is so unstable, uncertain, insecure by its very nature? So you learn to make this, this silence, this background here and now Trust in it, it's a reference point, it's a... What's always here, what's always now, no matter what state you're in emotionally or what you're doing, breathing, inhaling, exhaling, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, whatever the body happens to. Be up to in the present moment is like this. So we call that cultivating, because that leads to right understanding, samadhi. So the Eightfold Path is the Fourth Noble Truth, which is to be cultivated. So the Third and Fourth Noble Truth is about trusting. In insight, Samadhiti in this context isn't just believing in Buddhist philosophies and Buddhist ideas, or about right and wrong, good or bad, it's trusting insight into reality itself, into Dhamma. So even though we call it Eightfold Path, it's all about relaxed kind of trust in awareness. Patient trust, letting the world change accordingly, whatever emotions arise and cease, whatever uh, physical conditions arise and cease, Externally, internally, all these sankharas, all these phenomena—they're all the same, you know. They, you know, whether you take them personally or blame them on others, uh, all conditions are impermanent. Anicca, dukkha, impermanent, unsatisfactory. Anatta, non-self. So then when you have this insight into what we call emptiness, or non-self, the the cessation of suffering is like this, you let everything go into the silence. to cultivate the silence. It's not an object that you cultivate that you try to hold on to. It's the relaxed state of awareness, puto awareness of change, of conditions, of suffering arising, ceasing, of happiness arising, ceasing, of changing of day and night, the seasons changing, change of, because we, we live with these changing forms they still operate according to laws of karma. So what is born, grows up, gets old and dies. You know, so the, it's not about finding eternal life through physical form or permanent happiness. In getting all the right conditions and holding on to them forever. Because you can't do that. It's impossible. So at this time, worldwide, we have this, this kind of negative perceptions of the future, of climate change, of... of pandemics operating permanently in, in a worldwide level, universal level, the deterioration of the environment, floods, droughts, forest fires, possible wars, overpopulation, migrations of people trying to to move out of areas, disaster areas, there's so many things happening to the planet Earth at this time that we hear about through the news, or we feel, we intuit it, that they, you know, this overpopulation of planet Earth has never had so many human beings living on it. And we need food, we need shelter we need to survive all these migrations from from other countries from other continents and that it's people trying to survive to get to protect their family in some way just the conditions of climate So, our refuge is in the unconditioned, which is Dhamma, reality here and now. So, whatever happens, good or bad, good fortune, misfortune, we can learn from it. We learn from the changing conditions that they are, that their nature is to change. You know, the idea of a, that progress will take us to a kind of permanent, worldwide, universal society, where everybody's happy living at peace and there's justice, no corruption, fairness for everyone, equality, That's imagination, we can imagine that, a future where all the international political problems, differences, racial problems, gender problems, societal problems, religious differences are all reconciled and we're living in eternal happiness is an imagination that we create. It's a beautiful picture. But that's all it is, it's not reality. It's not the refuge we need to trust in. Is some kind of future prosperity, future ideal state for humanity on planet Earth. Because even at this time, people are going trying to find an, an escape from planet Earth looking for habitable planets in the universe. But the universe is here and now. It's consciousness, awareness, here and now. That's universal, not personal. So in terms of other planets, habitable planets, you know, these are images, you know, we look out at Mars or Venus and they're not, they don't look terribly habitable. Somebody sent me a photograph of Mars recently taken from as the, uh, on the planet Mars that looks Pretty awful to you can imagine living there, escaping from planet Earth, which is quite beautiful from the distance When photographs of the Earth taken from the moon. Planet Earth is blue and green, quite lovely in its form. It's a beautiful planet. But it's also a form. It's also a sankara, it's a phenomenon. so when we talk about universe it means the universe means the, the whole the perfect complete that's here and now that's not something you will find through meditation it's not a, something that you lack or don't have or you're not ready for it all these these assumptions are thoughts, creations in your mind. So in Theravada Buddhism we use the word Dhamma for perfection, complete, whole, oneness. Words cannot define Dhamma. ultimate reality it's intuitive and it's here and now so it's not some kind of intellectual abstraction that uh, only a scientist could understand so when we take refuge in the Dhamma we use the word puto as a kind of Helpful, directional sign. Awaken awareness. It's not about believing in Buddha or... <clears throat> that the first sermon after the Buddha's enlightenment was 2,564 years ago in Sarnath, India. That's, that's still images, memories, assumptions... But the Four Noble Truth is about the present condition of humanity. So that's why it resonates in modern society, something so ancient, a teaching, why it's not about ancient religions, or ancient societies, or ancient cultures. Because the Four Noble Truth is not, it doesn't have, it's timeless. So it's interesting to see how much interest there is now in in Western countries like the UK, Europe, America, Australia, countries that before had no interest in Buddhism or Dhamma, knew nothing about it. Only fifty years ago, you no, know, because the the Western civilization had, had developed through science, through Christianity and science, both seeking answers to the problem of human suffering by trying to create good conditions, understanding the condition phenomena, trying to sort them out and pick and choose and develop and refine, Science has done amazing work just in refining conditioned phenomena into minute particles. So phenomena, whether it's a minute particle, or a planet, or a visual universe... <coughs> whether, you know, that's about size, about form, about space. But where does space and form arise is in consciousness. If, you, if there's no consciousness, then how can there be space? If there's no space, there's no forms because your form, your physical form, these bodies here depend on space to manifest, to exist. So space and time, time is, is about forms, changing forms. Space has no boundary, but it's here and now, and you can perceive it. So it's being able to perceive, just visually perceive space is like this. But there's no boundary to space, is there? Where does space end? You can't imagine it. The end of the universe? That's, you know, you're taking it to an abstract perception, an idea of a universe having, having a, a form of some sort, a boundary eventually that we can't see. But in terms of the experience of here and now, space has no limitation. Consciousness or awareness, mindfulness, space, and forms arise, manifest, because of consciousness. So our refuge is in Dhamma, conscious awareness, Puto, awareness, witnessing the way things are, the changing conditions that, that we actually experience through these forms. And seeing that you're not what you think or believe, you're not a limited personal form, no matter how you lived your lives or what you've done in the past or the traumas of your childhood or experiences in life. These are memories now. No matter how fortunate or unfortunate we personally feel, as individuals this awareness is is unitive so the world space and forms are in conscious awareness and our view of that you know we seem limited because we are in in terms of the reality of here and now as as a form, but we learn universal truths through this reflection on the way things are. And this is possible within this lifetime in in these human forms, to realize ultimate truth or Dhamma. We say "bodhichitta," to be realized individually. You know, no one can do it for you. So, when the Buddha gave his first sermon, two thousand five hundred sixty-four years ago, in India. It's a timeless teaching and it's pointing to, to the way things are here and now, not about the way things were in India a long time ago. It's not about antiquity or it's not an anthropological study, archaeological study of religion. So uh, Asala Puja Day is a day for celebration, to really try to <coughs> use this teaching that's available to us here. Whether you're a lay person or a samana, the teaching is available to everyone. It's not kind of a secret, teaching for special developed, spiritually evolved individuals. Because suffering is common to us all, you know, whether, no matter how fortunate, or unfortunate you may feel about your life. So I offer this as a reflection.